uh, response to what you had given them. I'm sure that if that is true for us, that is true for Jesus Christ. Uh, he gave us a gift in our salvation package. And uh, it is, uh, and surely he must wait with anticipation for us to discover that and to develop it and deploy it because he knows the full potential of the gift he has given if it gets discovered and developed and deployed. So that's really what we're all about in these uh, several nights. Now I could wish that everything about gifts uh, was positive in the scripture. But that is not the case. In fact, the longest passage on spiritual gifts in the Word of God is a negative one. Uh, and that has to do with what we call the sign gifts. You remember that we mentioned the serving gifts, the speaking gifts, and the sign gifts. And I showed you a chart of those last night. And suggested that the speaking and serving gifts are for the building up of the body of Christ. Uh, the sign gifts were for a witness to an unbelieving people, particularly referred in 1 Corinthians 14.22 to Israel. And uh, uh, we're going to move through that tonight. In fact, I'm going to move uh, through the entire book of 1 Corinthians. So uh, that's going to mean that you will have to kind of screw your thinking cap on real tight. And uh, we're going to move. And I'd like you to take your Bible and just uh, open, first of all, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Remember, we suggested to you that there are four major passages in the Word of God, in the New Testament, dealing with spiritual gifting. The shortest of those passages is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses uh, 10 and 11. The uh, next passage in size is Romans 12 uh, verses uh, 8 to 11 or 6 to 11 you could include all of that and the uh, third passage is Ephesians 4 uh, 11 and following and the fourth passage is 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14 so there are uh, three chapters involved in that lengthy passage. And the only one of those passages that mentions the sign gifts is the last one. None of the sign gifts are mentioned in any of the other passages by Paul or Peter or anybody else. So, if you are at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 then, we're going to move through hitting the high points in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. But I want us to... Uh, start by just looking at the first words. So if you have that open, chapter 12, now concerning. There's a very familiar Greek uh, phrase here, peri death. And as you're reading through the book of First Corinthians, you see that repeated again and again. Peri death, peri death, peri death. And uh, you will see it usually translated, now concerning, now concerning. And the reason for that is that 
the book of 1 Corinthians, unlike the epistle to the Romans, is not a single argument all the way through the book. It's not a single treatise that's being presented. Uh, rather, it is answers to problems that have been reported to Paul concerning uh, the Corinthian church. And uh, uh, there, there was not much good uh, to be said. And uh, that's probably why we never uh, find a church called the Corinthian Bible Church or the Corinthian Baptist Church or whatever else, because it really isn't an honor to be called uh, that. It's a mess. And uh, so I want us to realize that when you come to chapter 12, you've got one in a series of problems. And this is dealt with uh, at greatest length of all of the passages. And in order to get the spirit of this, we need to really go back to chapter 1. So I'm going to slip back there and then quickly move through it and come back to chapter 12 again and let you see this, hopefully, in a graphic way. Uh, he begins the uh, book with a very, very complimentary statement of the Corinthians. Not unlike the introductions to several of his epistles. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are the sanctified, that is, set apart unto Christ, sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called saints. Uh, we have... Uh, the italicized words added in there, actually what you have in the text is called saints. Uh, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Paul goes on to say a couple of very fine things about them. Listen to it from verse 4 on. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Jesus Christ, that you were enriched in everything by Him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift. In other words, the Corinthian church of, of uh, saints, which is what you are, it's what I am, and uh, what the Catholic church is trying to figure out if Sister Teresa was, uh, I, I get kind of a kick out of that as taking the Council of Cardinals a long time to figure out if she was a saint or not. And, uh, well, I was a saint uh, 60 years ago, and I still am today, and so are you from the time of your new birth. Uh, we are not uh, uh, made that sometime later on. He says to all of the church here that they are saints and that they come short in no gift. And furthermore, they are not only fully gifted, but they are eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who also will confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That is a wonderful opening statement. You could hardly do better than that. Uh, these people were richly endowed as a church. From there on, it goes downhill. Uh, in verse 10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. And then he goes on to go into that. Now, let me turn this uh, projector on to get warmed up here while I'm talking. Uh, <clears throat> he goes then from that point on to mention issue after issue after issue that were problems in that church. Is that not coming alive there? Thank you. Uh, and I, I'm only going to stop on one of them. I'm going to stop on chapter 4 because you need to know uh, what the attitude of this church had become uh, toward the Apostle Paul. Uh, in uh, verse chapter 4 and verse, turn over there, chapter 4 and... Uh, Verse 8. You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. Uh, in other words, this is biting sarcasm now. It is not the typical approach that Paul would use, but some people can get into such a problem that about the only way you can reach him is through uh, overstatement and sarcasm and etc. And he says, You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men. Then the next words, we are fools for Christ's sake. I cannot tell you how many messages I have heard with that title, fools for Christ's sake, used as a positive statement. It is not a positive statement at all. It's biting sarcasm. Look at the next phrase. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. You great big smart Corinthians. We are weak, but you are strong. That is, in your estimation. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. 
And we labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made the filth as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. And then he carefully follows up by saying, I do not write these things to shame you. That is not my purpose. But as my beloved children, the ones that I begot through Jesus Christ. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. So therefore he is urging them, knock off this attention to false prophets and apostles that have come in and derailed you. Therefore I urge you, imitate me. For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. And he goes on to spell it out. In other words, the Corinthians, in their lack of maturity and in their in, uh, increasing carnality, they had come to believe that they had grown beyond Paul. That they were spiritual giants and he was a spiritual pygmy. And uh, that's a hard kind of group to teach. If the students think that they know more than the teacher, then you're, you're in a real bind. And that's what Paul is facing with this group, this church, that he uh, was responsible for bringing to Jesus Christ. Now, he, he begins chapter 5 with, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And he goes on to spell that out. It's unbelievable what they were permitting and allowing in the church. And probably we're getting close to some of that even in our day. Uh, and then they go to court with one another in chapter 6. And in chapter 7, they're, they're uh, misusing the marriage relationship. And, and on and on. You go through each one of these chapters. Every one of them has a, a serious problem before it. And you'll find that phrase, now concerning, now concerning, a number of times. And uh, so in chapter 11... The second verse, now I praise you, brethren, and he goes into another issue, and then in chapter 17, in chapter 11, verse 17, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, you're getting worse and worse, rather than better and better. This is an awful uh, epistle, in many respects. Uh, just full of problems. So when you come to chapter 12, and he begins now concerning spirituals, brethren. If you're, if you're, uh, if you've got a good literal translation, it will uh, have the word gifts in italics rather than just putting it in the text, because the, the, there is not the uh, the word in the Greek text. It's just simply states, Now concerning spirituals, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant, or more literally, I want you to stop being ignorant. 
Now, that's not what Dale Carnegie would say is the best way to start in working with this people. Uh, nobody likes to be told that they're ignoramuses. And, uh, and that's what he's saying to them. I want you to stop it. Stop being ignorant. And, uh, and then he says another nasty thing. He says, you know that you were Gentiles. And that was not a nice thing for a Jew to say. Uh, you're, you're just Gentiles who were unlearned, ignorant people spiritually and furthermore you were Gentiles that have been carried away swept off your feet to these dumb idols and however you were led and again no one likes to think that they're they've been swept off their feet by false doctrine false teaching and he is nailing them for this and furthermore you were swept off your feet to dumb idols idols that do not speak or talk or hear dead things and of course uh, the Greek world was loaded with this kind of thing and uh, Corinth was not behind any of them in this so then Paul begins in verse 3 to say therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the spirit of God calls Jesus accursed and no one can say that Jesus is Lord uh, except by the Holy Spirit. And he begins by correcting their doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Uh, they had gotten to the place where the Spirit of God was exalted above the Son of God. Paul puts it in strong terms when he says, uh, you've, you've made Jesus accursed. Uh, and uh, He's going to follow up on that with some of the things he says. They, they demeaned Jesus. Uh, I, I cannot uh, uh, continue on this without mentioning at least one example. I, I uh, was doing a, a spiritual gifts conference for a, a group of Campus Crusade people in Nashville, Tennessee. And I was doing it in an abandoned theater where they had a, uh, a, what do you call that thing out front, the marquee that, that has the place for the sign. And so it says, Spiritual Gifts Conference, uh, Earl Rodmacher. And uh, that's the first time I think I've ever made it into the theater. And uh, <coughs> they, uh, uh, there was a, a large group, of course, and they were all basically college-age people that came into the conference. And then... Uh, partway into the beginning introduction a, uh, a dignified looking gentleman an older gentleman uh, uh, beard uh, white suit looked like Colonel Sanders uh, came in and he uh, he sat down in the back and I thought well that's a little unusual I, I wonder who he is and he sat all the way through this thing. And I went straight through 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 12, 13, and 14 in about two or two and a half hours. We won't be here that long this evening. But I uh, uh, was taking it phrase by phrase and going through. The man came up to me afterwards and he said, uh, I am so-and-so. I'm just returning home from the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship in Miami, our annual meeting, where he was a vice president. And uh, he said, I thought that 
I would come here for an afterglow. That was a, that's a typical charismatic statement. Uh, and so he thought I would get some more here. And uh, he came in and he, he got a different kind of presentation that he ever had heard before. And, uh, and he never dreamed he would hear. And he said, uh, uh, I, I, I've listened to you all the way through. And he said, uh, I've never heard anything like this before. Vice President, Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship. And uh, he said, uh, and I, I don't have any question. It, it's just as clear as can be. He said, and I'm going home. I'm going to get out of the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship. I'm going to leave my church. And I'm going to get into a church that teaches the scripture as you have done it here. And man, I'm thinking, wow, this is really good. <laughs> that he's uh, come under such conviction and uh, repentance and change. And then he said, but I have one question. Uh-oh, that's what I thought. Uh, there's a question here. And uh, he, he said to me, would you tell me uh, why Billy Graham dedicated Oral Roberts University? Now, what does that have to do with anything? Uh, well, he was uh, very impressed with Billy Graham, and rightly so. Uh, probably had come to faith through Graham's preaching and uh, and now uh, he is being told that uh, what he has believed is wrong been swept off his feet by uh, a lack of faithful exposition of the word of God and uh, it, in God's providence a very interesting thing had taken place I had my briefcase with me and I said uh, I can't tell you why Billy Graham de dedicated Oral Roberts University but I can tell you what he believes about the gift of tongues and I whipped out a letter from Billy Graham that I had recently received stating his position on it and somebody had asked him what do you believe and he said when I received Jesus Christ, I received all that I need and more. And I have been seeking to work all of that through. And uh, he said, I was baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ, as every other Christian is. And gave a very clear statement in this letter. So I read it to him, let him see it. He said, well, that's enough. That seals the case. But you see, he was, he was waiting because there was that highly respected person who uh, seemingly approved of what he was being taught by dedicating the institution that was perhaps the center of thought on uh, the sign gifts at that time. Uh, so I, I simply say that it, it makes a great deal of difference what you approve, uh, what you consent to, uh, especially if you are a person uh, that is respected for your uh, viewpoint. 
And uh, so here, uh, Paul makes very clear that uh, the doctrine of the Corinthian church on the Holy Spirit is wrong. They have held that doctrine in such a way that it demeaned Jesus Christ. And uh, as Graham said in his letter, I got all that I needed when I came to Christ and I haven't used that as well as I ought to use it yet. So, uh, sometime later I was in, in uh, well I know, I know what the date of it was. I was in Melbourne and Sydney, Australia and uh, I'd left my wife and family in uh, Philadelphia at an annual meeting of the Conservative Baptists and I took off for a series of spiritual gift conferences when this was a very, very popular topic in, uh, in Sydney and Melbourne. I spoke at most every college there and in many churches, etc. And uh, when I was coming back from one meeting, I came through the campus of the University of Melbourne, beautiful park. And uh, it was a, a rather dark park, uh, poorly lit, except for on one end, as, as I was going through, there was a piece of beautiful statuary. And uh, it, was, uh, it was well lit, so well that it, it just attracted my attention as I'm driving through there. I'm driving through, I look over at that statue. Oh, that is really beautiful. And then when I got through the park... Uh, realizing how little light there was in the park except for that piece of statuary. I thought, you know, I could not have seen that statuary if there had not been the lights. But uh, at no point in my looking did I ever think, oh, what beautiful lights those are. You see, the, the lights were doing their job. The lights were given to cause me to focus on the statue, not on the lights. The work of the Spirit of God is not to get you to focus on the Spirit of God. Uh, I, I've heard people say we need another Holy Ghost movement today. No, we don't need another Holy Ghost movement. What we really need is a Jesus Christ movement. And uh, if we have a Jesus Christ movement, it will only be because we are depending upon the Holy Spirit to throw the lights on Jesus Christ. And he is not pleased when the attention comes back to him. He is pleased when people see Jesus Christ as he is. And that ought to be our focus. The Corinthians had that turned around. And that, you see, that opens you up to all kinds of possibilities. Uh, the only member of the Godhead... Uh, that should really get our focus is Jesus Christ. That's what God the Father intends. That's what God the Spirit intends. Uh, he is the only one that walked among us. He is the only one who left footprints that we can follow. He is the only one who became man among us. He tabernacled among us. And we need to focus our attention on Jesus Christ. And if we do that, then we will be giving the Holy Spirit the raw material that he needs to form Christ in us. Uh, that, by the way, is the whole 
thrust of 2 Corinthians 3.18, which many, many years ago I chose as my life verse, that we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, what? The glory of the Lord. What does the Bible state the glory of the Lord is? His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. We, we look at the glory of the Lord as it's revealed in Jesus Christ, and as we do that, we are metamorphosed, it says. We are being changed into the same image as what we look at. We, we don't look at the Father. The Father is not come, has not come before us as incarnate. Uh, the Spirit has not come before us as incarnate. But Jesus Christ has. And therefore, when we uh, focus on Jesus Christ, we please the Father and we please the Spirit. And we give to the Spirit the raw material by looking at Christ that He needs to shape Jesus Christ in us. So I, I stop at that point to make that very clear. So he is saying that uh, do not in your theology uh, get to the place where in any way you are demeaning the revelation that you have of God in Christ. That is the top of the line. There's not something beyond that that is greater or better. And to say that there is, is to make Christ accursed. It is to demean Christ. Those of you that have the Nelson Study Bible there, you might want to check out the note at that point. And by the same token, no one can say, indeed, that Jesus is Lord. No one can make Christ Lord apart from the Spirit of God. So he gives you a beautiful balance, theologically, right off the bat. Now, to get to the further statements here. In, uh, in the following verses, he's going to want to drive home the, the truth concerning the unity in the Godhead with regard to spiritual gifting. And uh, he gives it to you from uh, three different perspectives. From the perspective of the Holy Spirit, from the perspective of the Lord Jesus Christ, and from the perspective of God the Father. So listen to it. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are diversities, my text says differences, it's the same word. There are differences or diversities of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Uh, in other words, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all involved in bringing this spiritual gifting to life in us. And uh, God the Father, uh, God the Spirit rather, uh, the diversity of the gifts, the number of the gifts. He is the distributor of the gifts. And uh, God the Son, the ministry of the gifts. And uh, 
God the Father, the Energizer. The, the word in Greek is very close to our word in English. Energema. He is the energy for us. And so, when we have the Spirit of God working in us through gifts, we will have growing unity. When we have the Lord Jesus Christ working in us by way of the ministries of the gifts, uh, you will have a growing unity. And when you have God the Father working in us in the operations or the energema, the energies, you will have a growing unity. So when God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in this gifting process, we will have a growing unity. And where we do not have a growing unity is because there is something missing in our uh, development presentation of it. Now let me put that in a little different way, a little more uh, practical way perhaps. Uh, in chapter 12, verses 4, 5, and 6, you could call it the work of God in differences. Uh, the Spirit of God is the distributor of the gifts. So he will be in charge of the number of gifts that we have. Uh, but the Son of God will be in charge of the ministry of those gifts as we move out across the earth. And the ministry of the gift, let's suppose that uh, I have a gift of teaching, and my ministry of that gift is... is uh, better used in teaching adults than in teaching children. On the other hand, some people who are not interested at all in using their gift of teaching to teach adults, but they're very taken to teaching children. So this difference has to do with the, the way you use your teaching. Uh, I, I have often said that... Uh, is probably kind of unkind, but I said, I, you know, I think that all junior high and high school kids ought to really be uh, tossed into the ocean and drowned, and then they ought to be revived uh, when they get into college. And uh, uh, I, I'm really not basically interested in a, in a high school conference or a junior high conference. On the other hand, I know guys that just come alive with their gift of teaching when they can get into a junior high or high school conference. I find that that's not my area. Uh, but give me college and above, and I, I really can enjoy that. Uh, so there are differences of ministry of the gift. And uh, then there are differences in the the energy some people really uh, are, are able with their gift to attract great crowds other people will attract a few and that is not uh, uh, something that is apart from the work of God the Father who who gives the energema God does uh, recently in some of our discussions, we've been talking about numbers of people who, who uh, uh, get involved. Uh, God gives the energy of the gift, uh, uh, not man. And we want to be careful not to try to buttress that with all kinds of contemporary uh, uh, 
methodologies that may fall short of being true to the Word of God. So, you have uh, that, uh, that package of spiritual gifting presented here in verses 4, 5, and 6. Now listen to how Paul applies that. Verse 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. That's a clarifying statement. Notice, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one, not for each one, but it's given for the profit of all. So the reason we want to get each individual understanding their gift and using their gift in a particular kind of ministry that fits their givens and then experiencing the energy or operation of God the Father the reason we want that to get going is for the benefit of the body the, the scriptures never have the idea that we need a particular gift in order for my maturation the gift is not given for me the word of God is all I need with the spirit of God ministering it to my life uh, I do not need the gifts for me. I need the gifts for you and for my place in the body of Christ. So the manifestation or the administration, that's the same word that we find used for dispensation, the dispensation, administration, stewardship, manifestation, they're all the same uh, Greek word. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one, each one of you, for the profit of all. So uh, why uh, must you get involved as a, a member of this congregation? Uh, because you need it for your spiritual uh, benefit? No. The Word of God is what you need for your spiritual benefit. What you need to do with the gift of God is develop it for the benefit of the body. Now, uh, so the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all, for to one is given, and now he's going to go into a discussion of uh, a number of these gifts. He will, he will list uh, nine gifts here to, to display the diversity in the gifts. And so you'll have the gift of healing, the gift of knowledge, helps, wisdom, giving, administration, discernment, faith, tongues. All of those are part of the total of 16 sign, speaking, and serving gifts mentioned in Scripture. So now the question arises, uh, how is... It determined which of those is my gift. Uh, and so some people would say you need to pray about that. No, it has nothing to do with prayer. Because uh, the gifts were given in my salvation package. At the moment of my new birth, before I ever prayed a prayer about it. Uh, they, are, they are not given in response to prayer. Uh, they are given sovereignly by the Spirit of God. And I've already mentioned this so I can move through it quickly uh, on a pre previous night. 
verse 11, after he names these nine different gifts out of a package of 16, he says, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. And you'll remember that I suggested to you that if you think it comes by my will or your will, then make a note for yourself and say this is not a W, it's an H. The gifts are given as he wills, not as we will. So if I have the bad attitude and thinking that I've been shortchanged, that I am, I am not a great administrator or, or a leader, or a preacher, or teacher, uh, like, um, but I, I have a gift of helps or gift of mercy, I've been shortchanged. No, not at all. Uh, the, when, when my stewardship of my gift or gifts is evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ, it will have not one thing to do with what gift I had. It will have everything to do with what I did with what gift I had. So, uh, he gives you uh, nine to, a mention of nine to show the diversity between them. Now, I, I want to jump ahead here to uh, let you see a, a little uh, teaching device that Paul uses when you're, when you're talking with a group of people that are likely to be disagreeing with you and thinking that they know more about the subject than you do then you, you begin to, to corner them and Paul was famous at that he would get them into a corner so if you were to do what I have done here you would find that he is taking these people who think he is a spiritual pygmy in comparison to them and that they know more about spiritual gifting than he does and he, he just gradually moves them into a corner and then bang, he capstones that in 1 Corinthians 14, 22. Let me show you that. He moved to 12, 28 and he mentions 1, 2, 3, 4, uh, 5, 6, 7, 8. Eight gifts. In, she, in uh, 13, 1 to 3, he mentions five gifts when he is seeking to show us the superiority of the fruit of the Spirit over the gifts of the Spirit. In 13, 8, he mentions just three gifts out of the 16 to show the temporality of them. Uh, that the gifts go to the rapture, uh, not beyond. The church will be complete then. And then in 14.5, he's down to two gifts. And by the time he gets to 14.22 and 23, he is down to uh, uh, one gift that he is really wanting to get them straightened out on. Just to see that, uh, just grab a couple of pages there and turn over to 14, chapter 14, and verse 22. And uh, I'll begin reading at verse 20, actually. Uh, Brethren... Stop being children. In other words, grow up in understanding. However, in malice, be babes. And they were mature in that. But in understanding, be mature. 
And then he goes back to the Old Testament to pick up on this particular sign gift. The ability to speak a language that is not your language that you have never learned and yet you are miraculously able to speak it. And if you go back to Isaiah 28, uh, 11, and well, the, actually the whole of the chapter, but uh, if you go back there, you will find, in 11, particularly in verses 11 and 12, this quotation written in the law of God. With men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that, they will not hear me. Uh, in other words, uh, just uh, let's, let's turn back to that. Turn back to Isaiah 28 and get a look-see at this because it may seem a little vague if you do not uh, do that. Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. Uh, the, the nation of Israel had hit the bottom and uh, they, were, they were mocking the prophets. And uh, you run into that uh, when you come... Uh, well, let me, let me read a portion of it. Verse 1. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is the head of the verdant valleys, the beautiful valleys, to those who are overcome with wine, a bunch of drunkards. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, will be trampled underfoot. And the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys, like the first fruit before the summer which an observer sees. He eats it up while it is still in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, for a spirit of justice to judgment and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. They also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink are out of their way. Notice this now. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. These are the leaders of Israel that he's speaking of. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables, this is a a scene you really don't want to see. For all tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. Whom will he teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just drawn from the breast, the immature... For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people. And in that case, historically, he is speaking of the Assyrians who are going to destroy them. Yet they will not hear. Uh, Let's see, he will speak to this people. Verse 12, to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing. Yet, they would not hear. 
But the word of the Lord was to them. And now this is sarcasm here. Uh, Precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go forward and that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. And uh, so this is a strong statement of the prophet of judgment on the nation of Israel. And in 1 Corinthians 14.22, you have another New Testament occasion of that same kind of thing. For the nation of Israel had reached an all-time low once again. And they are ripe for judgment. And consequently, when you get to 14.22, he says, Brethren, let me read from verse 20, Stop being children in understanding, grow up, however in malice, be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me. So, you'll see what he's doing. He's going back to an Old Testament historical situation, and he's bringing that same thing over to the first century by way of application and uh, and. Tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. So when somebody tells me they've spoken in tongues, I say, well, what is it and what's it for? What is it and what's it for? Uh, Acts chapter 2 tells you exactly what it is, the ability to speak a language that you have not learned, uh, and you speak it miraculously, and... Uh, and uh, then chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians tells you what it's for. It's for a sign, not to believers, but to unbelievers, which unbelieving people is the nation of Israel in century one, like it was the nation of Israel back in 800 B.C., uh, in, as the prophet Isaiah warned, warned them about their mocking the prophets. Do you follow that? If I... Uh, do you have a question on that? I, I want to be sure that I'm stating that uh, clearly enough. Because uh, we've got all kinds of people today that are talking about having spoken in tongues. There is nobody today that is speaking a language they have not learned. They are speaking gibberish. And it's usually in King James English. They are not speaking a language. You know... It'd be a wonderful thing if churches that believe in the, the uh, gift of tongues for today, like the Assembly of God and the Foursquare Church, and that, which I grew up in, and, and others, if they, uh, it'd, it'd be a wonderful thing if what they have in their doctrinal statement is true, then they would never have to go to language school when they go to the mission field. Just get the gift from God of that language. But there's not one mission society be they charismatic or non-charismatic, that doesn't have to go to language school. You see, they, they are not given a language of those people. They are not speaking in tongues. And uh, the gift of tongues in Acts chapter 2 was for the many languages that were there, and each one heard them speak in his own, not only his own language, but his particular dialect. The, the word is dialectos. Uh, so we, we need to clarify that. Now, Paul goes on then in uh, chapter 12 to, uh, to 
unfold this uh, spiritual gift doctrine. And in chapter 12, verse 12, he says, For as the body is one, and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by in one spirit, and by the way, in one spirit would be a better rendering than by one spirit. Uh, the spirit of God is the sphere into which we are placed by Jesus Christ, the head of the church. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. Now, uh, move beyond that now uh, so I've uh, got this uh, I think you can see that there the Christ the baptizer taking Jew and Gentile who are believers in Christ and placing them into the sphere of the spirit of God and and he pneumati the sphere and care of the Holy Spirit. So between the time of our regeneration and the time of our meeting with Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God has been given the charge of taking care of the family of God. So the body of Christ in the care of the Holy Spirit until the head of the church, Jesus Christ, returns. Now in chapter 12 then, verse 14, he says, for in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Uh, and then he goes through what we went through earlier. And if allow me to just skip over it, because I've already uh, un unfolded, I hope, uh, clearly what Paul has said about the eye and the ear and the foot and the hand and so on and so forth. We did not choose to be what we are by gifting. We are what we are by the sovereign grace of God. Holy Spirit, Son of God, God the Father. So, you have that reiterated again in verse 18 then. Notice it. Just as in verse 11, it says the Spirit of God distributes to each one individually as he wills. Notice verse 18. But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if you'll skip ahead to verse 28, you'll find this statement, And God has appointed these in the church. And then he goes through another batch of the 16 to show their appointment in the church. So in verse 11, and in verse 18, and in verse 28, he is saying that God the Spirit, God the Son, and God the Father are the ones who have sovereignly placed me in gifting, membership, and energy. And so that should be, I think it's rather interesting that those uh, further statements in 11, uh, 18, and 28 parallel what he said in 12, 4 to 6. You see that? So that in 12, 4 to 6, you have uh, God the Spirit gives the gifts, Christ the Son gives the ministry of the gifts. God the Father gives the energy or the operations of that. And then as he unfolds that more, uh, he 
repeats the same thing again in 12.11, and 12.18, and 12.28. And all of that, he says, will have the goal of unity. So, in verse 19, pardon me, in verse 14, for in fact the body is not one member, but many. And he skips down to verse 19, and if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. So he is speaking about oneness, unity in the body, by, by diversity. So diversity in, in gifting does not need to lead to dissension. Uh, diversity in the church, in the gifting and the, and the use of those gifts in ministry, and the energy of those gifts should all lead to unity. Now, who needs unity? Well, I can think of three right here. Uh, if we were all an ear, or all an eyeball, or all a mouth, uh, those are three pictures that uh, do not portray what Paul is trying to say. He is saying that we, we get a body with many members, yet one body. Many members, lots of diversity in the body, but uh, one body. And uh, what is the... All of this. Verse 25 gives you the purpose for it. Look at it. Uh, I, I better pick it up with verse... Uh, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, verse 23. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts, added in, have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. Uh, but God composed, having given, composed the body, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, brought together this body, having given greater honor even to that part which lacks it. Why? In order that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. Why would that be true? Because that's my body. Uh, I, I mentioned one of the nights that as we were flying down here on a plane, I grabbed the uh, Southwest Airlines magazine. And as it was new and fresh, and as I grabbed it, my finger slipped across the page, the top of the page, and immediately I had a slit in my finger. And I didn't have to wait for anybody to come and help me. Immediately, I wanted to stop that bleeding. That's me. No, that's not you. That's your finger. No, that's me. That's my finger. And uh, so I wanted to stop that bleeding. And I, I love that little uh, stamp that's put out by the, uh, the group back in Lincoln, Nebraska, Boys Town. Have you, have you seen that? It's a, a stamp, a picture of this guy, little, little guy, who is carrying his big brother. And underneath it says, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. Now you say, wait a minute, what's that to do with anything? Say, Unity. Uh, he's my brother. 
He's not my enemy. He's my brother. So I have an inscrutable kind of connection with every member in the body of Christ. And therefore, I don't want to hurt my brother. I want to help my brother. I want to love my brother. And uh, uh, that reminds me of, to make a, uh, an application here. Several of you were at a meeting that we were at last night, and this would be a good application of it right here. Why do I do what I do by way of love? Because he's my brother. And it's commanded of God. And we will come across differently. And when, when our respective views are shared, they will not all be equally uh, delightful to every person there. And we, we have to learn that we are one in Christ. And it's God's uh, desire that through the diversity we will have unity. It's not through everyone being the same in genes or gifts or etc. It's uh, through diversity we will have unity. That's God's purpose for gifting in the body. Read it again. Verse 25. But our Presentable parts have greater modesty, but our, pardon, our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to the part which lacks. Why? That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And then you have this inscrutable statement in verse 26. And if one member, just one member, suffers... All the members suffer with it. You say, how can that be? Just as when I split my finger, my whole body suffers. And my whole body uses whatever tools it has to come to the aid of that member. One member suffers. All the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Uh, we, we are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. Now, verse 27. Now you are body of Christ, and individually members one of another. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, Second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Do all have the gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. And then verse 31. And this is a couple of verses here I must get through because they're uh, so crucial. Uh, do uh, in verse 31 uh, do all interpret? No. Then verse 31. But in my text says I believe mistakenly but earnestly desire the best gifts. 
earnestly desire the best gift. Now we've got a problem there in translation. And I want to try to make it clear. It is the word that the Greek word uh, translated, uh, uh, the, the Greek word zelao, uh, translated in uh, this word earnestly desire the best gifts. In, in the Greek language, I'm sure that you are familiar with this, that, that there are different tenses, there are different moods, and, uh, and uh, in this particular word, you've got the second person, uh, plural, and they loot. The possibilities of translation then are either in the indicative mode, or in the imperative mode. Either one is a grammatical possibility. And when that is true, then you have to look at the context to see which would be the better rendering in this context. And uh, so, uh, I was reading a book by a German writer one day on this, and it, uh, the lights went on. He said, this ought not to be in the imperatival uh, mode, but in the indicative mode. And in that mode it would read, but you are earnestly desiring the best gifts. You are uh, perhaps even, you could spread it to say, you are selfishly seeking the best gifts. And you know that what they are doing is not the best way to go because the next phrase says, and yet I show you a more excellent way to go. And you find that in uh, chapter 13, the, the uh, fruit of the Spirit love, and look at verse 5. Verse, well, I'll take it to verse 4. Uh, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own. So when a person is seeking their own here, they are not operating according to the work of the Spirit of God through the gifts of God. Uh, so he is answering in chapter 13 uh, questions that would relate to misuse of the preceding verses. Uh, now, how do I, I say that in a couple of minutes here? Uh, there are probably at least five reasons for rendering this in the declarative or indicative uh, mode rather than the imperative. One of them is that is the most likely reading in exegetical process. You certainly don't speak in the imperative most of the time. I hope you don't because that's not a way to make friends and influence people. Uh, you, you don't speak. You speak most of the time in the indicative mode. And Paul has already said three times that the gifts are sovereignly given. Verse 11, verse 18, verse 28. So it's not something that we are told to desire a specific gift. Thirdly, 
the Greek word is used with a negative connotation in the nearest context, namely chapter 13, verse 5, which I just said to you, love does not seek its own. Love does not seek for itself. Fourth, uh, tongues is mentioned last in the order of priority in the package of gifts there, and I don't think that's the strongest, but I think then, fifthly, the strongest thing is the two adversatives in verse 31. And so he says, uh, do all have all of these gifts? No, no one has all of them. Well then, what ought we to do? We ought to earnestly receive the gifts that are given to us. So, what they are doing by desiring the better gifts, they are working in contrast with the but of the sovereignty of God in verses 11, 18, and 28, and then in the following, and yet, I show you a more excellent way. So, all of that perhaps will suffice to say to you that verse 31 should read, but you are earnestly desiring the best gifts, and yet I show you a better way to go, a more excellent way. What is that? It's the way of the fruit of the Spirit, love, as over against the uh, gifts of the Spirit. So the perfect way to deal with the gifts of the Spirit is have this kind of a process in my life. The first thing I want to do is to be controlled by the Spirit of God. The filling of the Spirit, the control of the Spirit of God. When I am, moment by moment, being filled or controlled by the Spirit of God, then I will produce what? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Then I have the right attitude for the use of the gifts of the Spirit. So this is the order that ought to be happening in my life. The love, the fruit of the Spirit, ought to be uh, the result of the control of the Spirit, which will give me the proper attitude for utilizing the gift of the Spirit. May I just say in passing that verse, uh, uh, that chapter 13 is not meant to be taken out from among chapter 12 and 14. I've been in many homes where I see a, a plaster of Paris uh, thing on the wall that's uh, the love chapter, chapter 13. Uh, that may be a nice uh, uh, something, but it, it's poor use of the scripture. Because the reason chapter 13 is there between 12 and 14 is because that's where it belongs. Uh, everything in chapter uh, 13 refers to something in 12 or 14. Now let me give you uh, an example of that. In 13.1 Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. You say, what in the world is that? Uh, 
And some people would say, well, it's just a big noise. No, that's a much more specific reference than just a big noise. Uh, the sounding of the brass or the clanging of the cymbal historically and culturally was part of the pagan liturgy of the cult of Sibylle, which the Corinthians would not have to have explained to them at all because it was all around them. And so when a person went in to the uh, pagan temple of the cult of Sibylle, there would be the sounding of the brass and the clanging of the cymbal and uh, uh, announcing the entrance into the pagan worship. So Paul is saying in a very graphic way, as he did in 12.2, you were carried away to these dumb idols. The Corinthians were participating in the pagan ceremonies that had nothing to do with Christianity. They had no business being there. Not unlike what the uh, Alexander the coppersmith and others did in Ephesus with regard to the, uh, the, the idols of Diana of the Ephesians or Artemis. So the world of that day was full of paganism and if you want to see it just listen to the Olympic Games again as they were last time and the time before last where they have all kinds of paganism being uh, spouted before us in the intermission and the presentation. Uh, that day was full of it. So Paul takes five of the gifts and he exaggerates them. He's got a hyperbolic exaggeration it's a, it's a, to, the, to the nth degree. And he says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, the fruit of the Spirit, I have become nothing but pagan worship, sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods, the gift of giving, to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, that's the ultimate sacrifice, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So he is saying, you take all of the gifts and extend them to their ultimate manifestation, and in God's sight it is zero if it is not done in the fruit of the Spirit that comes from the control by the Holy Spirit or the filling of the Spirit. That's why chapter 13 is there. And he puts it in very strategically to say the way you Corinthians are going uh, does not fulfill these qualifications. And particularly, love does not seek its own. Now, I've, I've not got the time. I think we've carried it through to 1421, what tongues are for and what he uh, condemning them for tongues are an historical uh, gift that was given as a sign to the unbelieving Jew and that's why when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD there no longer was any evidence of that uh, particular gift 
until we have had in our own generation a, a growth again of a manifestation not of the biblical gift of tongues but of ecstatic utterances. And people do it in good faith that this is something that I ought to do to show the Spirit of God is at work in my life. Let me conclude with a, an, another experience. I, I, so many of these come out of my time with Campus Crusade because for 25 years I was speaking in various conferences there and uh, yearly. And uh, the, I remember being at the, at the Denver uh, conference in the summertime and uh, they were choosing the staff members that would be used at that point. And uh, Filipino, Frank Obian, then had the responsibility of that and this young lady uh, came to him and she said uh, uh, she wanted to come on the staff and so he was interviewing her and said she had she was born again and she was excited about that and she had spoken in tongues etc and whoops uh, Larry said no no we, we do not uh, practice that in crusade at that time at least and uh, and so uh, she was just really, she said, I can't believe it. I've been born again, and in addition to being born again, I've spoken in tongues, and et cetera, et cetera. I went to, what, why, why? And Frank Obian said, well, uh, Dr. Rodmacher's upstairs. They, I knew the guy who ran the Denver Hilton, and so he gave me the penthouse up there. And uh, I was, uh, Ruth and I occupied most of the floor, I think. And uh, she came up to talk with me. And uh, she explained the situation, and I, she said, I've been baptized in the Spirit, I've spoken in other tongues, and said, they, they won't receive me on the staff, and she was distraught by that. And I said, well, uh, t tell me about this being baptized in the Spirit. What, uh, what's that all about? She said, well, uh, you, you know, I said, well, I, I said, well, would you help me out? I, I just need you to show me. And uh, so would you... Uh, uh, would you show me in the scripture that uh, uh, baptism in the spirit has to do with speaking in tongues, etc., etc.? And so she began to look back and forth, and and uh, I could see that it was going to be a long time because she really didn't know where she was heading in the text. And and uh, uh, I, I said, uh, could I, could I help you a little bit to find that? I said there are only. Uh, uh, seven passages that speak of the baptism in the Spirit. One in each of the uh, uh, Gospels, and uh, two in Acts, and one in First Corinthians. I said, we could look through those very carefully, very quickly. And uh, so I, I went through the seven passages with her, explained what the baptism in the Spirit was, and when it took place, and what it had to do with in the church, etc. And uh, so uh, I, I said to her uh, in the process, I, I neglected to tell you one of the things I said to her. I said, would you, in as much as you spoke in tongues back there, would you, would you do that for me now? And she said, well, that's, uh, that's kind of, I, I just do that privately. I said, well, we're private. It's just you and me here. Uh, why don't you do it right now? And uh, I've already told you I have no mercy. And, and uh, so... I, I said, uh, uh, and she said, well, she, she, she said, I'd, I'd have to wait a while. I mean, I'd have to. I said, well, I'll wait. We've got time. You, you, we'll, we'll go ahead and we'll wait. And when you get ready, you do it. And so she, uh, 
pretty soon she came out with some utterances that sounded quite King James-ish to me. And, uh, and, and, but she stopped very quickly. And I said, well, don't stop. I hadn't even gotten into the spirit of it yet. I mean, uh, give me some more so I can really get the feel of what's going on here. And uh, she said, well, there isn't any more. I said, you mean to tell me that all of this excitement is about what you just did? As compared to the Word of God? Where's your focus? And uh, then we went through these seven passages. And I, when I got through with those, she, uh, she said, uh, she thanked me and she hugged me. And uh, uh, I said, well, what's all this about? She said, oh, she said, I, I've just been, uh, uh, what did she say? How did she put it? I've just been it would be what I mean by contemporary uh, uh, salvation from the, the, the power of sin. She had just been baptized, she thought. And, uh, and I said, well, I thought you told me that when you came in here, that's what was true of you. She said, no, and I'll never forget this. She said, no, I was enslaved to what somebody told me. So I, I begin with an illustration and I close with one of a man who was the vice president of international gospel, uh, Christian businessmen's, not Christian businessmen, full, full gospel businessmen's fellowship. A leader in that movement. And this young lady, both of them were extremely sincere. But what they needed really was to just look at the text of scripture. What does it say? What are tongues? What are they for? Uh, tongues are not for the believer. They're for the unbeliever. And they are designated as a particular unbelieving people, Israel, as a sign of judgment on them. And it is not a sign of blessing. It was a sign of judgment. And when, the, when Israel came under that judgment, 70 A.D., and their temple was ruined, the city was ravaged destruction galore and Josephus who was a, a Jewish general in the Roman army tells the story of the devastation of Israel where people actually engaged in cannibalism in their starvation they entered into eating their own dead children Terrible judgment came on Israel. Uh, not unlike what happened to them when the Assyrians came in and conquered them and wiped them out. And once again, in 70 AD. Now we wait for the nation of Israel to get their act put together. And there, we, there seem to be uh, indications that that kind of thing is getting closer and closer. But let us not get people into error simply because it seems to be an entertaining kind of thing. The only gift in the Word of God 
that God ever gives a specific purpose statement for is the gift of tongues. Why? Because of the terrible misuse that was given to it. And you can ask the question of anybody when they say, I spoke in tongues. What is it? Acts chapter 2, a language that you have never learned but have miraculously. And 1 Corinthians 14, 22, a, uh, the purpose of it is as a sign to the Jew. Verse 21 and 24. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to those who believe not. Now, I've left much out there. Our time has gone and passed gone. It's very difficult to put all of that together into one presentation, but I hope there will be enough for clarity for you. And if there is not, then please ask me. Uh, help me to... Can we explain, explain it to you again? I'd be happy to do that. Let's close in prayer.